It's Tuesday, August 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After finding registered sex offender and multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein dead in his prison cell over the weekend, Attorney General William Barr ripped federal detention center officials in New York, saying it was a failure to adequately secure Epstein and that the case would continue on against any co-conspirators that might have dealt with him. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what we know. Next, the Trump administration is tightening the rules that could deny green cards or citizenship to immigrants who need public assistance. Things like food stamps, welfare, or housing assistance. Ted Hessen, immigration reporter at Politico, joins us for how this new rule would work. Finally, Simone Biles has just reasserted herself as the greatest gymnast ever, winning her sixth U.S. national championship and landing a move on the floor exercise that no other woman and very few men have ever landed, the triple-twisting double somersault. Nancy Armour, columnist for USA Today Sports, joins us for what makes Simone Biles one of the best athletes today. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Thanks for having me. We're learning a little bit more about the death of Jeffrey Epstein The Attorney General William Barr on Monday said that there was a failure by the Federal Detention Center in New York to secure his safety. We know that he was found hanging in a cell. What do we know about the circumstances of his death? Well, it seems like a few things went wrong as far as the initial results of the investigation. And one of them is that in that unit, in the special housing unit, uh, the inmates are supposed to be essentially visually checked on every 30 minutes or so. And in his case, it appears that wasn't done for several hours before he was found uh, in a cell. So that's one problem. The other problem is that Normally speaking, he would have a cellmate in his cell, and that is particularly for folks who are at risk of harming themselves. That's considered an important part of the prison process to have a cellmate in there who can call out for help or notify someone if something goes wrong. And and he did not have a cellmate at the time this happened. There was a lot of quotes that have come out from officials there basically made it seem like, well, if it wasn't Epstein, it was going to be somebody else, Uh, almost like their hands were tied, like they could not prevent this. Yeah, that's that's exactly what uh, union officials have told us that, you know, that they're so stretched thin, according to the union, that it's it was bound to happen. Suicides in prison and jail is, is a pretty serious problem. And, and frankly, you know, if it's not a celebrity, it doesn't really get much attention. Right. And, you know, I think what some of the union officials are trying to say is, look, we understand you guys care a lot about Epstein, but this is a problem in this system on a larger level. I think uh, it was the attorney general himself who earlier this year said that they were short about 4,000 to 5,000 employees. Um, and, That's right. And so this has been an ongoing problem. There was a hiring freeze put on by the administration. And as you mentioned, union officials are saying, we're just stretched so thin, we really just can't handle it. 
That's right. And and so you've got problems at that specific jail in New York. You've also got broader problems in the system. And we're told those two things impact each other, that those two things work together and, and sort of contribute to everything that happened there over the weekend. Uh, so there is this broader problem within the Bureau of Prisons. There was this hiring freeze. What have the victims of Jeffrey Epstein said beyond, uh, about this? They had to wait till next year when this trial was really going to start going through. As it is, they were waiting all this time, and now they're not going to get anything out of this. The whole reason Jeffrey Epstein is, has been such a controversial figure and, and such a hotly debated figure is because he's already been through the system once and many people thought he was treated far too leniently. And now after he's been arrested again and charged again with serious federal charges that could carry decades worth of prison time, uh, he is in, in one way cheats the system again by killing himself. And all these victims who had hoped to see him face trial for his alleged crimes are now not going to see him uh, at the defense table. And just a quick reminder of that sweetheart deal that Epstein got. It was approved by Alexander Acosta, who was the former labor secretary. I mean, he was getting out every single day on a work release thing. I mean, he was there like 13 hours a day, maybe. And then he still got out early on top of that. William Barr has said that, you know, this is not over that now the focus is going to be on any co-conspirators that helped Epstein secure these girls and, and were part of the whole process. Who are they looking at with regards to that? So there were a number of, there were basically four women who either worked for him or dated him uh, in the early 2000s who were involved in arranging for the girls to come to his house, uh, setting up appointments for them and in some cases abusing them themselves. And so those four women, I think, are, are front and center in federal prosecutors' uh, sites when they when they think about who might face additional charges. I don't think we should assume that, that anyone else will be charged, but I, I don't think we should assume that anyone's off the hook either. I mean, one of the challenges now for prosecutors is, do they have enough evidence from other victims and, you know, maybe documents to charge someone else. And if they were to charge someone else, would that person be able to convincingly say, Epstein made me do it in some fashion? Because one of the odd quirks of this now is that the lead defendant, the most, the main suspect is now dead. And anyone who may have helped him, it's easier for them to make an argument that they weren't responsible because they were, they were afraid of Jeffrey Epstein and they were just doing what he told them they had to do. Uh, the last question I have, there has been an autopsy conducted on Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and it's been completed, but they are not going to, uh, they have not yet reached a final determination on cause of death pending further information. Do we know what they're waiting for? Any? Well, if you look at past cases, I think, I think one instructive past case is uh, the death of actor Philip Seymour Hoffman of a drug overdose. In that instance, the medical examiner for New York said, you know, we've finished the autopsy, but we're awaiting further results. And they are awaiting toxicology results. And those toxicology results took three weeks to come back. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a similar pattern here, just because it's such a high profile case. There's so much, you know, suspicion and conspiracy theorizing already that they probably want the toxicology results in hand before they make a final decision. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Through the public charge rule, President Trump's administration is reinforcing the ideals of self-sufficiency and personal responsibility, ensuring that immigrants are able to support themselves and become successful here in America. Joining us now is Ted Hessen, immigration reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thank you for having me. 
the Trump administration has issued a new rule that would allow federal officials to deny green cards to legal immigrants if they're receiving certain public benefits or if they're deemed likely to do so in the future. It's called the public charge rule. Ted, tell us a little bit about this change. That's right. Well, this is a sweeping regulatory change that will affect the legal immigration system specifically. And the biggest change will be the impact on immigrants who are applying for green cards, and that's to remain in the U.S. on a permanent basis. Under this regulation, there's a list of benefits that if the person has received them or is deemed likely to receive them in the future, they can potentially be denied a green card. And what are these benefits? We're talking about food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, housing assistance, known as Section 8. Um, these are all things that uh, potentially that, that if an immigrant is deemed more likely than not to receive those benefits, that they could be denied a green card. And beyond that, the, the regulation even sweeps into people who are applying for temporary visas. And, you know, something along the lines of half a million people are estimated by DHS every year to have to undergo a test uh, who have temporary visas to see if they might become dependent on these benefits if they arrive in the U.S. Is there a time limit on this? Like, let's say, going to use food stamps for a certain number of months. How do they kind of come to this determination? Well, the first thing is that this is a prospective rule. So it will largely affect benefits that are received after it goes into effect, which is going to be in mid-October in 60 days or so. And in particular, what they'll be looking at is benefit use that adds up to 12 months of use over a 36-month period, so over a three-year period. What they're trying to do is look very broadly at each applicant and say, are they likely to use these benefits? And are there certain programs, I was reading in your article, there are certain things that are not considered in this. What are those programs? The Children's Health Insurance Program is one example of one that in an earlier draft of this rule, it was not clear whether this would be included or not. And that's a program that provides low-cost coverage to families that don't qualify. They earn too much for Medicaid, but they still need, need some benefits. So that it will not apply to them. The use of Medicaid by children and pregnant women, as well as uh, women after a, in a 60-day period after giving birth, it will not apply to them, the use of Medicaid. And also uh, prescription drug subsidies, which was actually um, something that was in an earlier draft of this rule as a restricted benefit, also will be excluded. You keep saying this, that this was a draft. So they've had this kind of notice out for a little while now. Uh, they barely just filed the final rule. So whatever, uh, you know, there was some changes that it kind of went through. What's been the reaction to this so far? Well, I should say that's the typical regulatory process in that the administration put out its draft rule back in October last year, and they solicited comments from the public. And actually, in this case, it really got a tremendous amount of comments. We're talking uh, more than 266,000 comments. And many of them were in opposition to these changes, saying that it would uh, cause immigrant families to avoid benefits that they need and even cause immigrant families to avoid benefits that aren't specifically restricted here, just because they may be afraid that what they're using is down the road going to block them from getting a green card. So, you know, we heard kind of a vast outcry against this rule, specifically from health providers, from educators, and also for advocates for the poor. The acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director, Ken Cuccinelli, praised this change. He said, we want to see people coming to this country who are self-sufficient. Earlier this month, uh, you guys there at Politico were reporting on some of these numbers already, how the rejection of immigrant visas based on public charge criteria and how it's increased under President Trump. Can you share some of those numbers? 
Back in January 2018, before this current regulation had been finalized, the State Department actually went ahead and changed its guidance to put a tougher standard into place in regards to who would be determined to be a public charge. And in particular, the State Department was dealing with people who apply for visas from overseas. But once this change had gone into effect, we saw that public charge denial skyrocketed. It went from about a thousand denials back in fiscal year 2016, which was the last year under former President Barack Obama, to something like 13,000 denials in uh, fiscal year 2018. And the trend is actually continuing from what we reviewed in 2019, which is uh, the current fiscal year. In particular, what we noticed was that Mexican nationals were seeing a huge increase in the percentage of public charge-based denials for immigrant visas. Um, so that was an interesting trend. And I think we'll, we'll expect something similar to happen with these new changes that are going into effect with the DHS regulation that was released today. Reports are that some of this stuff was pushed by uh, Stephen Miller, who's a senior White House advisor uh, we know he's a hardline guy on immigration. Also, the same with Ken Cuccinelli. But uh, these are just efforts for the administration to continue to get a handle on on the immigration situation. People um, in the Trump administration, current and former officials, have said that this is a major priority for Stephen Miller, who is essentially Trump's uh, the architect of Trump's immigration agenda. And he's driven this forward. Uh, so you could see that he was really behind the scenes pressing hard to get this done sooner. Um, and I think part of the reason is they're expecting that this will be challenged in court. We already know that there are several lawsuits in the works and likely to come. And it could mean that this regulation gets blocked at some point and that they have to um, litigate it uh, in various levels of federal court. Ted Hessen, immigration reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Twisting double back. (laughs) Money! Just keep making history, Simone Biles. Joining us now is Nancy Armour, columnist at USA Today Sports. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Sure. Thanks for having me on. We're going to be talking about Simone Biles. She just won her sixth U.S. national championship. She also did a couple of amazing moves. This was a triple twisting double somersault that she did on the floor routine. Nancy, tell us a little bit about these moves and just how awesome a gymnast Simone Biles is right now. Simone is the greatest gymnast of all time. I mean, she really is. That was not even a question before yesterday. But after watching what she did last night, it was it's just amazing. I mean, I don't think people can truly appreciate how difficult and how gravity defying what she's doing is. I mean, gymnast women in particular have been doing double doubles on floor, which is a double twisting double somersault for decades. But the amount of power and strength that you need to put in that extra twist, you are basically like trying to pull your body around while also trying to flip yourself upside down, let alone having to know where you are in the air. Because by an inch, you know, she could do some real damage to herself. A lot of these moves are so technical and happen so fast that when you're watching it on television, it's really hard to lose sight of how, I mean, really insane some of these moves are. That's why you have to wait for that slow-mo replay so you can (laughs) count how it's happening. But, you know, I I think to the average person, you see somebody do an amazing somersault like that, and you're like, wow, that was really crazy. But 
as you're mentioning, the, the amount of power that goes into this and the awareness, spatial awareness that you need to do this in the air is really incredible. Uh, I love the way you wrote in your article that uh, the NBC replay showed that she actually jumped above the boom camera. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's uh, you put a throw an SUV in the middle of the floor right there. She's clearing that thing with ease. I still can't wrap my brain around that. And I've watched that replay in slow motion in real time, probably about a dozen times now. And I cannot get over the fact that she is above that that boom camp. I mean, that's probably five, nine, 10, 11 feet off the floor. And this is all her power. It is all her legs and core and, and upper arm strength. Like that's all her and to see her doing this, it really is just, I mean, clearly I'm, I'm still, like I said, I'm still just <laughs> amazed by this. No, I agree. I, I was flipping through the TV and I always like to tune into these things, but it caught my eye and I couldn't stop watching, uh, you know, after she went on and, and obviously, you know, those replays, you got to keep watching those. Yeah. Talk to us about Simone Biles in the context of just being an overall amazing athlete. Whether it's Michael Jordan's flu game or Michael Phelps out touching um, the guy in the hundred butterfly that, you know, they had to use like the slow motion replay cams to decide who got the gold medal. You know, Muhammad Ali's biggest fights. You can remember those those events in exact detail. I mean, you you say rumble in the jungle and you get a vision. You, you, you know, you talk about Jordan in the flu game and you get a picture in your mind. I think that's the same thing with Simone. It's not just that she's a beautiful gymnast. It's not just that she's amazingly talented. She does these things that change the sport. And so when you watch her, you know that you're watching history. And so I think it, it makes a much more indelible impression on you. And so I think she's somebody that decades from now, you know, similar to Mary Lou or Nadia Comaneci, we're going to be talking about her and we will remember oh yeah, did you see what she did at the national championships in 2019? Or did you see what she did at the world championships in 2018? There are moments that we will absolutely remember. And she's doing this all with a determination and poise through all of the crap that we've been seeing that's happening, that's been going on with USA Gymnastics and that with, you know, the former doctor, Dr. Larry Nasser, who was abusing athletes there. You know, she came forward saying she was part of that. And she broke down earlier in the week, too, just saying, you know, you guys had one job was to protect us and you didn't do it. And we're doing out here doing our jobs, um, winning titles and just performing at the highest levels. And you couldn't protect us. And, and, you know, she broke down crying during that. But she still has the poise and, and the determination to come through and do this in competition. Simone recognizes the the power and the influence that she has. I mean, she is the best thing going in gymnastics now. And. She's the best thing that USA Gymnastics has. You know, she's about there for the last year and a half has really been about their only saving grace. And she knows that um, she doesn't she t she picks her spots and she's very deliberate and careful about what she says and when and who she criticizes and how. But she knows that she can keep the USA Gymnastics, U.S. Olympic Committee, heck, even Congress. She can keep their feet to the fire because you not only you know, you've there are are more than 300 girls and young women who were abused by Larry Nasser. The vast majority of them were not Olympians. But Simone knows that her her stature, her accomplishments, gives her a louder voice. It gives her a bigger platform. And so she's not just speaking out on her behalf. She's speaking out on the behalf of all of the women who don't have that voice. And to me, that's as, that's as impressive and amazing as anything she does on the floor. Nancy Armour, columnist at USA Today Sports. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me on.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.